I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Our message is entitled, Delivered from Darkness, Delivered from Darkness. And this morning we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Colossian church from Colossians 1 verses 12 through 17, though we'll specifically consider the language found in verses 12 through 14. You might wonder why read verses 12 through 17 if we're considering verses 12 through 14. As we observed a couple of weeks ago in a little bit of a comedic light, the sentences that we find in our English Bibles here encompass several verses at a time. And we never want to take a portion of Scripture out of its context and extract it as just a sound bite. Scripture isn't written as collections of sound bites, but letters that have context, what comes before, what comes after, audience and author, and all sorts of things such as that. And so we'll read a little bit more than we're going to consider today. However, the verses that we consider in specific are verses 12 through 14. And we'll read those together now. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist." And then we come to the conclusion of that sentence in verse 17. Now, to be fair, the sentence that we just read, we jumped into it in the middle of it. It actually began, if you look back through the punctuation, in verse 9. We considered last week the passage of Scripture that we read in verse 9, continuing to where we read just a moment ago. In our series so far, we've discussed in the previous two messages Paul's introduction how he introduces himself to this congregation that he's actually never met in person. Paul has never visited the church at Colossae or Colossae, depending on which pronunciation of that you choose to use. But he's heard about them. He's heard about them through their faithful pastor, a man named Epaphras, a man that Paul would describe his dear fellow servant. And so in message one, we considered his introduction to them, how he thanks God for them, how he's heard of them, some wonderful commendations of their pastor Epaphras, and then we consider the meat of the introductory verses of Colossians, how the gospel has spread through the world and it's effectual, it brings forth fruit in the lives of people that hear it, in their lives and Paul's life and the lives of churches everywhere up until the day that Paul wrote. In last week's message, we considered the revelation of Paul's heart, for lack of a better term, how he prayed to God for them, specifically that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we observe from that that 
True ministers of the gospel, they're, they're no more real and revealed and candid than when they pray to God, but it is something that only God and the minister are witness to. And how the minister's greatest work, if you will, is done alone in his prayer closet as he prays to God for those that are under his pastoral care, and even others, as Paul obviously wasn't the pastor of the church here of the Colossians, but he prays for them, he loves them, he cares for them, he wants them to grow, to be strengthened in every good way, not to be stagnant, not to be inundated or affected by the philosophies of this world, something that he would warn against later, because as Paul writes this epistle, he does so like every other one he writes. There's a reason, and the reason is that there's trouble on the horizon for this church, and he addresses it, and he warns, and he confronts it with the intent of delivering them, sparing them from this false notion that would rob them of their joy in Christ, It would rob them of their doctrinal soundness, and it would steal, it would take their assurance that they have in Christ, because when Christ is obscured from our vision, well, suddenly our even assurance of salvation diminishes in our mind. It doesn't diminish in reality, but in our mind it does, because our assurance is only through Christ. And so when we take that view of Christ out of the way, suddenly everything else in life becomes much less clear and the freedom that we have in him is diminished. Today we want to consider the passages that we've read to you and, in a sense, visit some familiar and beloved language regarding our deliverance from sin. Now, along these lines, we've never conducted an exposition through the book of Colossians here with you before. We've considered so much of the New Testament. We've gone through Acts, and we've gone through Mark, we've gone through Ephesians, we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we've gone through James and Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 Timothy, Titus, and more in the time that we've been here. This is our first exposition through Colossians, but as we read the passages of Scripture that we want to consider today, this language will be very familiar to you. In fact, so many of these statements from the book of Colossians we have considered before. How many times have you heard me quote, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Many, many times. Where do we find that? Here in the book of Colossians. How many times have we heard that Christ must have the preeminence? Where do we find that language? Here in the book of Colossians. So while we've never conducted an exposition of the book of Colossians, many of the statements that we have used in our sermons for the past 15 years have come from the book of Colossians. Today's being a very great example of that. How many of you have heard me say from the pulpit and read from the pulpit that Christ has translated us into spiritual life, that we've been translated? You've heard that many times. I see many, many reactions. It's always good to have reactions from the people that you try to preach to. Nothing's harder than to go into a department store after hours and gather all the mannequins together and preach your heart out to them as their facial expressions never change. It's always good to have faces light up. I think that comment was made yesterday by one of the ministers that were preaching to us. Perhaps Brother Matt, I think, was the minister that that made that statement. You've heard the language that we considered today before. And I'm excited to share it with you today again. While these passages are often cited, 
they're also very concise. We don't have 15 verses to work through today. We don't have eight verses to work through today. We have three verses that we want to consider. And yet, these three verses contain so much information to expand on and unpack, if you will, that it'll spend, we'll spend the rest of the time that we have today rushing through the material to be able to consider it all. And so while this is concise, this entire book of Colossians is concise, it's not as long as 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or Romans or Hebrews. It's a book that contains so many powerful statements that when expanded upon, you have hours and hours of preaching and Bible teaching that could be done simply explaining the weighty passages and or weighty terms, rather, that the Apostle Paul uses. You might remember the quotation from Shakespeare's Hamlet, Brevity is the soul of wit. I think of that when I think about the book of Colossians, because Paul is very brief and very powerful, but the things that he writes, well, it takes hours and hours to expand upon. Let's begin looking at these verses one at a time, and we'll consider each individual statement as we come across them. Again, and just to read the three verses that we consider, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us unto the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins." In our language today, our passage and Paul's remarks have to do with God's deliverance of these saints from sin. And just as a reminder, when we began this epistle, when we began this epistle just a couple of weeks ago, notice the audience, verse 2 of chapter 1. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae or Colossae. Paul doesn't write this epistle to unregenerates very evident from the terminology that we read today and what we read two weeks ago. He's writing to saints and faithful. Now, that's important as we consider this language of being translated and redeemed and making meat to be partakers, being made meat to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. But it's even more important when we come to the warnings of Colossians. Paul doesn't write these warnings to men who may be saved, or could be saved, or perhaps are saved if Paul writes this epistle to saints. And so when you read the warnings against the philosophers, or the angel worshipers, or the deniers of Christ, those who would obscure his preeminence, understand that Paul is writing and warning a group of God's children. So many times when you come to the warning of Scripture, warnings in Scripture, to these various churches, the thought is interjected that, well, maybe these people aren't really saved, but perhaps they could be saved if only they were doctrinally sound enough. And yet remember, no matter anything else that we read, no matter the warnings that we read in Colossians, these are saints, these are faithful brethren, They have been made by God the Father meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. They have been delivered from the power of darkness. They have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. 
And they have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So we're reading warnings to God's children. Now, I'm thankful for the warnings in God's word, and I hope you are too. How many of you have approached a bridge and the sign appears, bridge out? Aren't you glad that sign's there? Or maybe if you've ever had to work and you wander around in other people's yards, if you're a land surveyor or at one time in my life I read power meters for a living, I was always thankful to see that sign, beware of dog, because the last thing I want to be is bitten by a dog. And so when I see the sign, I take note. I'm aware. Or how about this one? Electric fence. Aren't you glad to know before touching the fence that the fence is electric? What we read later in Colossians are the warning signs to God's people. But again, from today, we see depicted very definitively that these are not potential children of God. Now, there are only children of God. These are real children of God who stood at risk of falling victim to false teaching in their day. Are God's children at risk of falling victim to false teaching in today's time? Absolutely they are. And so the purpose of our preaching ministry is to build you up in Christ and warn you so that Satan doesn't steal your joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to have joy in Christ. Remember that what we can... Included last week with, from verse 12, Paul's prayer is that they grow and that they would give thanks unto God the Father. Our Christian walk is epitomized, culminated in a thankful, humble heart before God our Father. Giving thanks unto the Father, looking at this a little more specifically, which has made us meet to be partaker Partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. This word meet is an English word, if you're using a King James Bible this morning, which is what I use in my preaching and my reading. This word meet means fitting or appropriate. Now, we all knew that even if we didn't know that. We say meet today, and it means let's join together someplace. We meet someplace, M-E-E-T. We meet up in a place, maybe in a park, maybe in a restaurant, maybe at church. But the word meet in the KJV many times means appropriate or fitting. Now, when I said you all know that, but you may not realize you know that, when we often talk about marriage, what is the phrase that we use for Eve as God gives Eve to Adam? A help meet. And sometimes we combine those two words, help meet, into one. They're actually two words, and we say help meet, and by that we have reference to the fact that Eve is given to Adam in Genesis as a helper for Adam. But the word there, help and meet, the words there are actually two separate words, and what help meet means is appropriate helper. What had actually happened before that, God shows Adam every animal that is in creation and Adam names them, but there's not found a help meet for him. And so God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he removes a rib. He closes up the flesh thereof. By the way, that's surgery. He calls a deep sleep. He removes it. He closes it back up. That's exactly what we do when we conduct a surgery. And he creates from that rib uh, Eve and pre- prevents that wife unto Adam as an appropriate helper for Adam. And she is a what? A help 
meat for Adam. The word meat means fitting or appropriate. Fitting or appropriate. Now, we give thanks unto the Father, the Father which has made us meet or appropriate or fit or fitting to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And so God has made us fit. Now, this interjects all kinds of thoughts that we could spend the rest of the time today talking about. By nature, we are not fit to stand before God. By nature, we are not fit to go to glory. Because by nature, what are we? The children of wrath, even as others. By nature, we are dead in trespasses and in sins. Something has to happen to us, enabling us, blessing us to be worthy to stand before God in glory. A change has to be made to have fellowship with God because, remember when Adam sins in the Garden of Eden, at the moment of sin, there is separation between God and man. There is death. Death means separation. In the moment that Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died. Now you might think, well, he died 900 years later. Yes, he physically died 900 years later. But at the moment that Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was a death that occurred, and in that death, he was separated from God. And so something has to happen for us to be made fit to stand before God. And as a bankrupt, ruined sinner, there is nothing that I can do to make myself fit with God. From Isaiah, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Other language in the Old Testament, can a leopard change his spots? Can I take my sin and do something about it? No, because anything I would do to alleviate the sin is tainted by sin. And so I have no hope in and of myself. And so God makes his children meet or appropriate or fitting, meet, fitting, appropriate to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And what we consider today will be the more specific steps of that and how God does that. Just a little bit of a spoiler you know, when you get to a website and you open it up and it's talking about a movie you want to see, when it gets to the, the meat of it, it always says spoiler warning. And then there's a picture so you know not to scroll past if you don't want it spoiled. Here's a spoiler. Being made meat to be partakers of the inheritance in light is the exclusive work of God. Amen. God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father. We are made fitting to stand before God through the working of God and not the working of ourselves or any other person. Remember, we're sinners, and as sinners, anything we would do is tainted by sin, and so God himself has to exclusively work because God alone is good. God alone can save. We've come today to church to hear about a God who saves sinners, of whom I am chief. So what are we made fitting for? What are we made appropriate for? What are we made meet for? M-E-E-T. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. We have been made fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints 
in light. Now, each of those key words, if you're a person that likes to pick out key words and statements and sentences and paragraphs, each of those key words is significant. Let's go through and look at a few of the key words. Let's try to pick them out. We've been made meet to be partakers of the inheritance. Okay, so inheritance is a key word. They're saints, those who are set apart, those who are sanctified. And then lastly, in verse 12, the word light. Light is a key word. You have specific information about the work of God in the lives of God's children. We've been made fitting to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. That word of there is a genitive term. It's it's the inheritance of the saints, and it implies either source or ownership. In this case, ownership. It's the inheritance of the saints. It's something that they are given. It is something that is theirs. Now, let's unpack each of these terms a little bit. An inheritance is something that a person receives upon the death of a loved one. Now, it would be interesting and amazing and outstanding, perhaps, if when a Steve Jobs passes away, you could say, well, I really like the guy and I really like his estate. He has billions and billions of dollars. Surely none of his, none of his offspring will miss a million dollars if he's got billions of dollars. So I am going to will myself into his inheritance. Can you will yourself into someone else's inheritance? How do you receive an inheritance? We all know this. And yet sometimes we don't realize how it connects to salvation. You receive an inheritance because someone who loved you died and left it to you. Now, hint, hint, how does this apply to redemption? Someone that loved you died and left it to you. This is an inheritance that we have been made appropriate to be a partaker of. Made meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. This concept is heavily discussed in the book of Hebrews. If you want to know one place in all of the New Testament that talks about inheritance more than other places, read the book of Hebrews and especially take note of words such as testament. What is a testament? We have the Old and the New Testament, right? And we use that word all the time, and we don't realize that that word actually has reference to a will and testament. Have you ever known a loved one to die, and then they have the reading of the will? What is it called? It's the will and testament. Something that is the wish, the legal wish of someone who died and left an inheritance to someone else. The word testament also means covenant or contract. Jesus dies... And there is a contract between God the Father and God the Son, and His children inherit that which He died for them to receive. Now, even though this is spoken of heavily in Hebrews and in other Pauline epistles, I want you to notice this language from the very words of our Savior Jesus Christ. In the book of Matthew chapter 25, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is asked three questions, and He answers all three questions. He's asked about the destruction of Jerusalem, He's asked about the second coming, and he's asked about the end of the world. As he speaks about the end of the world, he talks about himself, how he will come back in all of his glory. With all the angels with him, he will sit upon the throne of his glory. He gathers all nations before him, and he divides them as a shepherd divides between the sheep and the goats. I might add, his sheep and the goats. And he sets the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. 
No inference to anyone sitting on the left-hand side of the building today. If you ever go to a little bitty church and everyone sits on one side, they took this passage a little too seriously. (laughs) To those that are on the right, on his right-hand side, what does he say to them in verse 34? Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, he goes on to describe them. I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. And we should be clear in explaining that the reason they did those things is because Christ was in them, and this was not the condition for them to stand before him. Again, inherit the kingdom prepared for you of my Father from the foundation of the world. But what we read here is how they were in this world. He describes them in this world. Now, why were they this way? Well, remember, the natural man is selfish and carnal and dog-eat-dog and selfish and greedy and hateful and hating one another. Read Ephesians 2, read Titus 3. The reason that they were this way is because the Holy Spirit was in them And what they do here is the working out of the fruit of the Spirit in their own personal lives. In other words, there's a difference in their life that is made by Christ. But again, these are the evidences of who they were, not the cause or condition of salvation. That is addressed in verse 34 of Matthew 25. Why are they allowed into glory? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They inherit a kingdom. Again, you inherit something because someone that loves you died for you and left it to you. At the communion service, as Jesus institutes that on the day of Passover, you notice in Matthew chapter 26, we just went over this last week at our fall communion service. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup in verse 27 and he gave thanks and gave it to them. And he said, drink ye all of it, which means all of you drink of it. For this is my blood of the what? The New Testament, which is shed for many for the redemption, or excuse me, the remission of sins. What does Jesus say when he passes the communion cup at the first Lord's Supper? He says, this is the blood of the New Testament. Again, the word testament being language, legal language, that applies to a will and testament when someone dies and leaves you an inheritance. Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 15 and 16, For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. In other words, the person who has willed this dies and leaves the inheritance. What is the inheritance? Eternal deliverance from sin. And so this word in Colossians, inheritance, just understand how rich of a theological term this word is. Christ has died, and in his death, he left those that
that were contained in his will, as it were, he left those an inheritance of eternal deliverance from sin, and we have been made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Can you see how that works together? What a beautiful concept that is. Further, we notice from verse 12 that this is an inheritance of the saints in light. Light is also a very rich theological concept. It's very simple. It's a very simple analogy. We walk out in the world during the daytime and we see light. We see everything we see because of light. Little children are, and sometimes adults are afraid to go out in the dark. So many times that which is done sinfully is described as that which is done under the cover of darkness. We have in Scripture the forces of darkness. You have in Scripture forces of light. Light is synonymous with good or metaphorical for good. Darkness is synonymous with or metaphorical for evil. There's often a juxtaposition or contrast made between light and darkness, that which is good, that which is evil. We have an inheritance in light. Now, I want you to notice this from the book of 1 John, chapter 1. This then is the message which we have heard of them and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In fact, as Paul writes, he refers to God as dwelling in light unto which no man can approach. When Moses experienced a more intense manifestation of the presence of God upon Mount Sinai. He asked God, God, let me look at you. Let me see you. And God says, no man can look upon me and live. And so he says, I'll, I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft and I'll pass by and you can behold my hinder parts. Moses, as he sees what he can see of God, and he comes off the mount after this period of being in the presence of God to the greatest degree he could, he had been in the presence of God so much that his face was glowing so brightly that the Israelites were terrified and made him veil his face. Similarly, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter and James and John, as they fall asleep, these men were always working. We're hard on them for falling asleep in some of the most important moments in Jesus' ministry. But they did stay awake sometimes 48 hours ministering to people. They fall asleep. They wake up. Jesus is whiter than the sun. He's glowing so bright that his clothing was brighter, was whiter rather, than any fuller could make it, is what the language says in the New Testament. In other words, you could not bleach his clothing that white by virtue of his body glowing and emanating such glory. The word glory and shining in Scripture are often the same word. God is light. In fact, as we see glimpses into that final day, after this world is destroyed in the new heavens and the new earth, there is not even a sun because God himself will give the light. God himself will give the light. And this is an inheritance that saints have where? In light. At the same time, and we'll come back to this statement in just a moment, the word light is used contrasted with the power of darkness, which we'll begin now considering together, because as we are translated into spiritual life, 
we are delivered from the power of what? The power of darkness. And so light in this passage refers to spiritual life, God's blessings in our life, where we'll be with him in glory. And darkness has power to, or has reference rather to all of the powers, the forces of darkness in this world. Satan, his minions, his people, the sin that we have as a part of our being because of the transgression of Adam. God saves us from one and places us in the other. And we have this inheritance with the saints in light. Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? That's not a question, it's a statement. And the antecedent to that pronoun, who, is the Father. God the Father has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. God the Father, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. God the Father has delivered us. Now the word deliver and the word translated here are used connected with one another because they're describing the same event when you are rescued in a vital sense from your depravity here in this life. And so deliverance in this passage and translation in this passive, uh, passage refers to the same event. God who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Delivered and translated. This refers to what we call the vital phase of salvation. You know, in scripture, salvation is divided up into phases. You have the covenant phase before the foundation of the world and the mind and purpose of God. God the Father being the representative of that covenant. He's the figurehead for the agenda of God, the prerogative of God in the world. He often represents God's sovereignty. God is a triunity of Father, Son, and Spirit. You have the phase of redemption, the phase of salvation that is legal. Justification, Christ on the cross, and we'll mention this in a moment. Dying for us, shedding His blood for us, and legally saving us from our sins. And this happened 2,000 years ago upon the cross of Calvary. But the vital phase of salvation is when God takes up residence in our heart, as it were, the phase of salvation when the Holy Spirit quickens us when we were dead in trespasses and sins and makes us alive in Christ Jesus. It is literally a resurrection from the dead, not in a physical sense, but a spiritual sense. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. This statement that we have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son deals with spiritual resurrection, personal, vital salvation. We were all in that covenant before the world began. We were all represented by Christ on the cross, but the vital phase of salvation is the only one that is distinct and unique to each individual heir of promise. Obviously, we're not all born again at the same time, either the same age in our own individual lives or the same moment in human history because there are God's children that are born again all the way back in the book of Genesis. Abel, for instance, is a man that walked by faith. He was born again. Well, obviously, he wasn't born again 
at the same time that I was born again. I'm not that old. I turned 40 last week, right? Maybe it was a week before. Time runs together, right? In my advanced age, I'm 40. I wasn't around when Abel was born again, but I trust there was a day in my own individual life when I was born again, and all of you as well. And it's individual and distinct to each and every one of you. The moment that God intervened in the course of your life and saved you from your sins in a vital sense, when he quickened you when you were dead, he gave you life when you were dead in sin. This is what most Christians have reference to when they mean that they are or have been saved. The moment in their individual life when they went from death in sin to life in Christ. God has delivered us from the power of darkness. Power here is used to describe a political authority, if you will. This word power in the Greek language was used to have reference to rulers, to authorities. You have been delivered from the power of darkness. I want you to comprehend the weight of that word. Because not only is he talking about the power of darkness in your life, which is the next application of that we'll consider, he's talking about the powers of darkness in this world. You have been delivered from the political authority, if you will, of Satan, his angels, his fallen angels, his devils, his demons in this world. Now you might think, well, I still struggle with succumbing to the desires of that wicked one. Oh yes, he's a He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He goes about trying to cause you to fall into sin and he wants to destroy you with it. But guess what? His power over you is over. Now, you might fall victim to one of his schemes, but he has no power over you. What does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Through Christ, you have power to resist the wicked one, and the wicked one will leave because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There is power we have through the Holy Spirit that enables us to even be victorious over a far more powerful being simply through resisting him. Resisting him. And I would add that the only weapon in our warfare and the armor of God to resist the principalities and powers with which we wrestle, as Ephesians chapter 6 says, the only weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. You know how Jesus defeated Satan? Of course, Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan. But when Jesus humbled himself and became a human being and Satan attempted to tempt Christ, you know what Jesus did all three occurrences? Quoted Scripture. He simply quoted Scripture. We have been given the power, we have been delivered from the power of darkness, and through Christ, we have the strength to resist him, and as we resist that wicked one, he flees from us. We have been delivered from the authority, the power of darkness. Now, by the way, what's the next phrase that we read in this statement? We've been delivered from the power of darkness, the word power sometimes having reference to secular authority, civil authority, kings and princes and governors. And we've been translated into what? The kingdom of his dear son. You begin to see the full context of this statement unfold before you. 
You're taken from one sphere of authority and you're placed in another sphere of authority. From one dominion to another dominion. From the power of that wicked one to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Taken from being under one wicked despot to a king that is not only a good king like King David was over his people, but one that is even your husband as you are the bride of Christ. We've been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And so, number one, this word power and our deliverance of it, from it, has reference to being delivered from the power of darkness in a positional or legal sense, that wicked one no longer has a claim on you, to put it in another way. Doesn't your heart rejoice to hear that today? You know, he spends the rest of his existence as the accuser of the brethren seeking to persecute you because he lost on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus hung upon the tree, oh yes, Satan bruised his heel, but that same heel that was bruised crushed the head of the serpent. The oldest prophecy of Christ in the entire Bible was spoken by God himself in the Garden of Eden after the fall that the seed of the woman, the virgin-born Christ child, would crush the head of the serpent as the serpent bites his heel. He bruised his heel, but Christ has crushed the serpent's head. And the power that he had over us is over. They no longer have a claim to you. Hebrews 2.14 says as much. Just read it for you and move on. Likewise, this that Christ through death might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ has defeated Satan. But there's a practical application of this text too, as there so many times is. He has defeated Satan. We're delivered from that political power as it were. But even sin's controlling grip over you in your life has been broken. Paul would say it this way in the book of Romans chapter 6. As he exhorts us not to sin, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You are what to sin? You are dead to it. When we sin, it's because the sin nature that's in us, the personal choices that we make. But Paul says, listen, ultimately, you are dead to it. It does not have the power over you in your life that it used to have. Again, you were dead in trespasses and in sins, but now, by grace, ye are saved. You are his workmanship, and by faith we overcome in this world. You now have power through the Holy Spirit to abstain from sin and to seek God. In Galatians chapter 5, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, we have a battle with it. We still have the nature of it, but its grip on us has been broken. And through the presence of the Spirit in us, we can abstain from sin in our own lives. 
He's delivered us from the power of darkness. That word deliver, by the way, is a synonym. It doesn't come from the same word as save, which is why it's not translated salvation or saved. But it is a synonym in English and in Greek for rescuing someone. The word literally means to rescue. We've been rescued, delivered from the power of darkness, and we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Let's focus on this word translated for a moment. This word's most of the time used, often used in the New Testament, in more of a negative sense, meaning to remove from a place. To remove from a place. Now, I find it interesting that we're dealing with kingdoms, the power of darkness used to reference sin and Satan, versus the kingdom of his dear son and inheritance of the saints in light. And the word that Paul uses that translates, translated in our English translations, literally means to remove. God has removed us from the power of darkness, from the secular authority of darkness. And he has placed us in the kingdom of his dear son. This word translated, think about it in the English language. It has reference to when you take one language, a statement in one language, and you put it into another language. We're reading this morning English Bibles. The Bible wasn't written in English. Sometimes people think that, I don't know, the beginning of time, maybe in the ministry of Jesus, that God just kind of came down from glory and said, here you go, here's an English translation of the Bible, but that's not how that happened. Faithful scholars who studied Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and English compared former translations, took the original languages, and faithfully translated the Word of God from Hebrew and Greek into our language. Now, I love that the KJV translators use the word translated here, and this is a theological term, and we need to know theological terms But think about just the act of a translation. Remember, they know what words they're using. They know what words they come from. They use the word translate in in this day and age in 1611. And they chose that word here. What are they conveying to us? They understand. They understand this scripture's teaching that we are taken from darkness to light through no power of our own. Just as much as the word of God has been translated from Hebrew and Greek into English by no power of its own. It didn't translate itself, right? Wouldn't it be neat if you could just put a book down in German and it just suddenly become English? Kind of like Google Translate, you know, where Google Chrome translates something for you. Even that is done through a program. Books don't translate themselves into other languages. It takes the work of something else or someone else. God has, God has, and you see this and it's in the present tense, who hath delivered us and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. God has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. As we think about this word being used to remove from one place, when we talk about the drawing of John chapter 6, that All of God's children will be drawn to him. They shall be all taught of God. We often describe that as being drawn from death and sin to life in Christ. Think about this word translated, removed out of its place. 
We've been drawn from death, removed out of its place, and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Now, coming near to the end of our message for today, I only had to go to 11 font today, so it won't be, it won't be 1210 when we're done. Always eat breakfast. If you're visiting with us today, Flint River is an eat breakfast church. The concept of the kingdom of God is very interesting, and at times you might say complicated, but only because it has so many different applications and faucets, as it were, in Scripture. Multifaceted, I guess. The language conveys both that of a king and a dominion, but it also includes subjects. After all, what sort of a kingdom is it that has no kingdom? What sort of a kingdom is it if it has no borders? What sort of a kingdom is it if it has no subjects or citizens? And so as he uses the word kingdom, understand all of those concepts apply. Christ is a king. In fact, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And while he has dominion and kingship over all the earth, this is a special dominion. Special dominion. Everyone in the world is under his kingship and in the natural kingdom over which he rules. But not everyone in the world is a citizen of his kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son. There's a difference. This is his kingdom. He is a king. It has boundaries and borders. It has citizens and subjects. How are those citizens made such? They are translated from the power of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. Just as much as this Bible is translated from Hebrew and Greek into English, the citizens of the kingdom are translated from darkness into light. This word translated, by the way, is used in the New Testament with reference to one man, Enoch, who did not see death... But God took him. He was the friend of God who walked with God, Enoch. And God translated him. He literally just took him up to glory, changed him. There are at least two people other than Christ who have physical bodies in glory, Enoch and Elijah, who was carried away in a chariot of fire. Translated, directly changed, without seeing death and decomposition as everyone else who has ever lived. Whose souls are with God today, but not in bodily form. Enoch is translated. Did Enoch do that himself? No. Power of God. Wouldn't it be great to just translate yourself and go to glory? This building would be empty in about 30 seconds. All this mess going on in the world around us. Imagine if you could just translate yourself to glory. We'd be gone about April 2020, right? Just gone. Gone. We'd be here no more. Where did he go? He was translated. translated into the kingdom. The kingdom having so many different applications or detailed parts, you might say, we're translated into it. But at the same time, in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark chapter 1, we read, The kingdom is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Well, if I'm translated into it, why is it connected with repenting and believing the gospel? Now, by the way, this kingdom was prophesied off in the book of Daniel in the days of the Roman Empire. 
The visions of Daniel says that God himself would establish a kingdom and it will break into pieces and go and infiltrate every other kingdom of this world. And here we are two millennia later in the kingdom of God I trust this morning. If I'm translated into it, why do I have to repent and believe to enter into it? Compare it to citizenship. You're a natural-born citizen of the United States, but you have to be within the borders of the U.S. to enjoy the privileges and the rights of citizenship. Do you think if you were in North Korea or Iran today and you were arrested and you said, we can't do that to me, I'm an American citizen, what are they going to say? Oh, good, now we're going to be even worse to you than we would have been otherwise. Do you think that matters anywhere other than here? Not unless they're afraid of our government, and usually that's not the case. Not with one person. They think they can get by with abusing one citizen. You're translated as a citizen of the kingdom, and you enter into its gates, into the walls of the kingdom through repenting and believing. I trust that's what we've come here to do today. Lastly, and we'll close with this, in whom, that is to say His dear Son, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is forgiveness. Redemption is forgiveness. Redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. And we have redemption through what? The shedding of His blood. When Christ upon the cross of Calvary shed His blood for His people, He saved them from their sins once and for all. Now, the point was made yesterday, if you went into the store and you spent a bunch of money and you left that store and you found out that something that you bought was not given to you. Now, I would go back in for maybe a candy bar, a light bulb, something insignificant that doesn't really matter. But let's say, let's say someone sheds their own blood for a possession. The Son of God gave His life to purchase this possession. Do you think God's not going to get what He paid for? Oh, you've got security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. We are secure in Christ. We have redemption through His blood. Redemption means, again, to buy back through the paying of a price. The price that was paid was His blood. The purchased item is you, and you will be with God in glory for all of eternity because Christ has finished the work that the Father sent Him to do. Redemption is forgiveness. Now, as we read this beautiful passage, you see the work of the Spirit, which is translation. You see the work of the Son, which is redemption, the work of the Son and salvation. Where might we find the work of the Father? Notice how all of this language began in verse 12. We give thanks unto the Father. The work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of God's people. I leave you with a couple of exhortations as we close our message. Number one, if you understand what God has done for you in your life, what word begins all of this tangent that we expounded on today that Paul made? The word thanks. If I know this, what sort of a thankful heart ought I to have? And number two, knowing that I have been delivered from the forces of darkness and made a citizen, an inheritor of the kingdom of God, shouldn't I live in a certain way knowing that sin's power in my life has been broken and severed? 
May we leave this place today with thankful hearts living as saints in light. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this comforting and instructive and invigorating passage. Thank you, Lord, that you inspired your man, the Apostle Paul, two millennia ago to write this for us to our edification and comfort. We know, Lord, that if we love your son Jesus and we feel compelled to you that this work is already done, that we're made saints, and that's why we yearn for you and desire you. Thank you, Lord, that you desired us so much that you would send your son into the world to die for us and redeem us, and at the same time, send the spirit into our hearts to translate us from the power of darkness into a, another power, a greater power, the kingdom of your dear son. Father, we pray that you forgive us of our many sins, and we thank you so much for the knowledge of these things. We pray and we say together in Jesus' name, amen.